It is hard to imagine a world without the division into workdays and holidays, or regular office hours, usually 9 to 5, extra hours, and free time. But how did this daily rhythm, which is the core of our current experience of time, come to be? What is its impact on our lives? And how does it continue to evolve today with changes in the workplace and in the global economy? Hi, and welcome to Research Bites, the podcast of the Martin Buber Society of Fellows. In each episode, we feature innovative research in the humanities and social sciences by one of our fellows. Let's turn to Dr. Ethan Grossman, who is interviewing Dr. Philip Reich, a social historian working on the history of capitalism, organized labor, and urbanism. What's your workday like? Like most PhD students and also many postdocs who work at universities today, I'm not on a work contract that clearly regulates how many hours I have to work each day or each week. Uh, I don't have a punch card, for instance, and we don't have any time tracking systems. There's no flex time or anything else that uh, many people who are regularly employed would know from from their daily routines. So I can pretty much come and go as I please, and I'm not accountable to anyone for how many hours I work. So that sounds really ideal. Yeah, in a way it is ideal, but it has an effect on uh, how I, uh, as a researcher, experience my own working time. Like for me and people in similar positions, we do not necessarily experience working time so much um, based on hours, but um, we experience working time more according um, to a particular goal or task that we want to accomplish, let's say, to finish and submit an article or to prepare a lecture that we are supposed to give. It would seem hard to me to not think about working time at all in terms of hours. I mean, we have a limited number of hours in the day. Yeah, that's the the interesting dynamic, I guess, that um, despite the fact that I'm technically able to organize my day as I please, I sort of instinctively aim at, let's say, roughly a 40-hour week or so, which, of course, is the dominant experience of a major part of the working population. And I think it's this very ambivalence that I'm describing here that is very characteristic of many of our contemporary work realities, including experiences of time. So it's interesting that you say ambivalence because, I mean, naively you could just think that the working day is a straightforward kind of thing. It's the amount of time that we set aside for work as opposed to leisure or rest or anything else. So why is this even interesting? Well, I guess that um, abstract phenomena or everyday experiences that seem to be natural or self-evident have um, a very peculiar attraction for all sorts of academic disciplines through the social sciences and the humanities. Um, Think about anthropologists, for instance, who are very often interested in phenomena or experiences that appear to be natural but that nevertheless differ profoundly from one culture to another, like um, family relationships or sexual practices. Or think about sociologists who very often emphasize that what is taken for granted even differs within the same society based on um, social hierarchies in categories such as class or gender or race. Or think, of course, also about historians like myself, who are sort of magically drawn towards um, phenomena and experiences that appear to be natural or self-evident today, but that nevertheless carry radically different uh, meanings in the past. So um, the, the, this logic, I think, also applies to the history of working time and to the study of the history of working time, because what caught my interest when I began thinking about this issue of working time 
was that the was the fact that the way how we experience working time has a tremendous impact on how we experience time more generally and also uh, how this perception is itself subject to change what does that mean well think about the mid to late 20th century for instance most industrialized societies at that time were accustomed to a pattern of time that was very much determined by what you might want to call a trichotomy of hours or um, a division of the day into three parts. So depending on the respective place and time and also form of employment, a certain amount of hours was dedicated for work, a certain amount of hours was dedicated for what you might want to call leisure or recreation, and a certain amount of hours was, of course, um, required necessary for sleep. And um, this idea or this notion was already widespread in the mid-19th century when organized labor, especially in, in England and the US, coined um, very popular slogans such as the famous one, eight hours for work, eight hours for sleep, eight hours for what we will. Now, as the 20th century matured, um, this idea or this division of the day into three parts achieved an almost natural quality. Uh, for most people at the time found it rather self-evident that their daily lives were very much determined or structured by an hourly rhythm that derived pretty much from, from their jobs. So even times not spent actively working, such as breaks or holidays um, or weekends, derived directly from their work realities. So this is, this is of course not to say that they had a contract that clearly regulated what they would do or how they would spend their time beyond um, the workshop or beyond the, the office door or so. But it kind of introduced this logic of hours into the private sphere. And um, this went, of, of course, hand in hand with um, developments in, in other areas of public life, such as, let's say, transport or medicine or science or technology. Uh, think about transport, for instance. It is... Uh, obvious to us that commuting to work, for instance, requires a certain amount of time or that public health campaigns, for instance, recommend that um, we should dedicate a certain amount of time each day for physical exercise uh, during the day or for sleep at night. And together, all these developments um, had a significant impact uh, on the fact that um, most people do perceive um, time according to the clock. It's true, actually, that the division of time into three parts does sound very natural and as someone in the beginning of the 21st century it's very difficult to imagine that it was somehow different in the past and yet you suggest that it was that things have changed it was in particular e.p thompson the acclaimed historian of the english working class who argued in a seminal text that was published in 1967 that the industrial revolution caused among many other things a new consciousness um, or a new time consciousness um, of working people so in the pre-industrial past, uh, Thompson argued that notions of time had been structured by the length to perform particular tasks. So he argues that peasants or craftsmen, for instance, experienced time according to the duration that was necessary to, let's say, plow a field or produce a shoe. And there were even instances not or experiences not necessarily um, related to production that had an influence on how um, time was perceived. And there's the, what I find hilarious example that Thompson takes from an 18th century English dictionary 
of a pissing while. So you see that um, also more mundane or um, not necessarily work-related um, experiences or practices influenced how people perceived time. So according to Thompson, this what he calls task-oriented notion of time withered during the Industrial Revolution. The more that artisans and craftsmen transformed into wage workers and employees in factories and other places of centralized production, the less time was perceived by the duration required for a particular task. Working time, in other words, was increasingly measured and also experienced according to a fixed amount of temporal units, usually hours, spent for someone else, as an employee that is. Thus, this notion of time-oriented labor, as Thompson calls it, entered popular consciousness. This seems strange to me. Doesn't this exclude everyone who is not employed in formal or centralized production like factories? I'm thinking, for example, of the household or care work that's performed by women who might therefore have had a very different experience of working time. Yeah, that, that's really an important objection because it is uh, precisely what Thompson has been criticized for by later historians and, by the way, pretty much up to, to this day. In particular, these critics argue that task-oriented labor continued to exist among large group of workers and employees just as much as time-oriented labor was widespread already in, the many, in many pre-industrial sectors. And I think that the household or care work of women that you just mentioned is a very good example because their work experience remained heavily determined by particular tasks rather than by a set number of hours. And so did the experience of many domestic servants, of people in the professions, or also workers in putting out systems. What are putting out systems? Putting out systems were a form of subcontracting work that was particularly prominent in the huge clothing and textile sectors of the early to mid-19th century. And here we don't have a manufacturer who directly employs a large group of workers in centralized production spaces that eventually, of course, became factories. Instead, in a putting out system, a central agent gives out work to a subcontractor who then organizes the production process more or less independently in some decentralized uh, work site. Uh, this could be either the home of the workers or a smaller workshop that was often run as a sweatshop. Now, putting out systems clearly lost relevance during the Industrial Revolution, but especially in the sector of ready-made clothing that was widespread, uh, in particular in um, the urban context, it continued to exist. Uh, and these urban contexts spread pretty much from Berlin to New York City. So if you picture, let's say, a female seamstress around 1900 in Manhattan's Lower East Side, for this person, the working day began by going to the subcontractor in the morning, receiving not only the raw materials, but also often the templates, and learning about the time when she was expected to return the intermediate products. Could be, for instance, um, a certain amount of sleeves that she needed to return until the evening or until the next day. So to this woman, her experience of working time was very much determined on the tasks on the particular amount of sleeps that she was uh, supposed to produce and not so much on a given set of hours. It sounds like you're saying that we should forget about this distinction that Thompson made, this change from task-oriented to time-oriented conceptions of time. Well, I don't think so. I think that despite its flaws or the problems in, um, in his argument, um, the distinction between task-oriented and time-oriented labor remains crucial because it gives us an analytical tool to study the fragmentation that characterizes contemporary work experiences. 
Think about a bus driver who is employed by a public service provider. To him, work time is most certainly determined by the daily or weekly hours stipulated in his or her work contract. But think about a graphic designer or an IT specialist in some urban creative industry. To him, working time and the experience of working time is most certainly determined by the particular task that he is uh, supposed to perform and not so much by the hours because, especially in these sectors, working hours have very limited meaning. Not only are they often not compensated for, like overtime hours, but they are also often considered an almost natural feature of the, jo of the job. So to a person employed in, in such sectors, it is much more um, the project, the pitch, the deal, the presentation or whatever it is, that characterizes um, that person's experience of working time. And I think that these experiences um, very much characterize many of our present-day work realities, from replying to emails in the evening, to preparing talks during the weekend. These tasks regularly define notions of time determined by particular chronological units, like hours. And I think that this fact contributes enormously to what sociologists are describing currently as an increasing dissolution of boundaries between what is work and what is non-work. But I'm still not sure that I understand why you find it important or helpful to make this distinction between task-oriented and time-oriented labor. First, I think that it helps us understand how you might want to call it historical regimes of accumulation or systems of production transform through history. So when we say that a large group of workers experienced working time according to task rather than a fixed amount of hours, This indicates that uh, this system of production relied to a significant degree on decentralized, subcontracted or self-employed labor. In the Fordist era, which we usually associate with Henry Ford, of course, standardized mass production increasingly replaced these earlier forms of decentralized production. And the massive increase of unskilled factory labor contributed to the spread of time-oriented notions of labor. And of course, this does not mean that individual tasks somehow became irrelevant in production. Of course, they didn't. Um, but it was the clock that increasingly determined both the pace of the assembly line and also the boundaries of the workday. And I think to those of us who still recall Charlie Chaplin's famous movie, uh, Modern Times, we all remember that the main character here is confronted with a ridiculous pace at the assembly line. But what really governs the scene from above, so to speak, is the omnipresent factory clock. And I think if I remember correctly, it even features on the, on the official poster where Charlie Chaplin sits um, on top of that clock. The second reason is that I find the distinction between task-oriented and time-oriented labor helpful because it also has an impact on how organized workers formulate demands. The bus driver that I mentioned earlier might experience work time very differently from, let's say, a non-tenured researcher on a fixed-term scholarship like myself. And based on these distinct experiences, different group of working people formulate very different expectations or collective grievances. For someone like myself, for instance, there is no counterpart like an employer or so against whom I could enforce our demands. As I mentioned in the beginning, there's not even a clear regulation of working time for people in my position. So any conflict about working time is necessarily aimed at a particular task we have to perform. So it's interesting that you mentioned collective action. Let's turn to the struggles that emerged around the issue of time. Can you tell us a little bit more about the significance of work time struggles for the history of organized labor? Sure. I assume what most of our listeners have in mind when thinking about the labor movement of the late 19th and early 20th centuries are struggles about wages, about social security, the right to organize, 
and the improvement of working conditions such as safety and health concerns. We sometimes tend to forget that for the half century or so between 1870 and 1920, shortening the workday was the single most important rallying cry that united workers across borders and nations. In fact, one of the most striking things in the history of shorter hour struggles is, in my mind, its largely forgotten transnational legacy. So can you tell us something about the people involved? Yeah, definitely. I think that the, it is actually the people or the activists who illustrate this uh, transnational agenda very vividly. And let me give you an example of a person pretty much forgotten today by the name of Richard Trevelyk. Trevelyk was born in 1830 in England and he was trained as a ship's carpenter in Southampton, where for the first time in his life he experienced shorter hour struggles among the ship uh, carpenters uh, in Southampton. And around mid-century, this Trevelyk embarked on a really epic journey that connected some of the major hotspots of um, working hour struggles or shorter hour struggles at that time. So it was around mid-century that um, Trevelyk traveled via India to Australia and New Zealand, where, fueled by a massive increase of immigrants from Britain, the local building trades were just about to win one of the first eight-hour agreements that trade unions were able to enforce. Inspired by shorter hour struggles across the British Empire, Trevelyk made his way first to Peru and then to Panama and finally to the US, where he should become one of the leading figures of the shorter hour movement in late 19th century Northern America. And the closer that uh, the 19th century drew to a close, the more transnational this movement really became. Some of the most important events in the history of organized labor in the late 19th century, such as the establishment of the Second International or the first May Day celebrations, they were all very closely related to the issue of shorter hours and to the eight-hour struggle. Up until now, you've basically been talking about North America and Western Europe, as well as, I guess, parts of the former British Empire. Was the struggle for shortening the workday mostly a Western movement? No, it wasn't, but it is only in the past two or maybe three decades that shorter hour historians have turned their attention towards other parts of the world. Now, let me be clear, there can be no doubt that uh, the shorter hour movement was particularly strong in um, heavily industrialized countries such as Germany, England or the US. But from around 1900 or so, it really was a global struggle and there were eight hour movements all over the place. From Eastern European countries such as Bulgaria to South American countries such as Peru, from the Caribbean to British India or South Africa. Now, integrating such non-Western experiences into the study of shorter hour struggles is in my eyes crucial not only because it sheds light on labor conflicts that have often been neglected in, in academic research. It is also important because it helps us understand the internal contradictions and internal power hierarchies within the movement. Can you give us an example of that? I think that the case of colonial India is in fact a vivid example in this regard. Already in the 1870s or so, demands were put forward to shorten the workday in Indian spinning mills. Now it's interesting to see that these demands were pressed not so much by Indian workers, but by manufacturers in Manchester who feared that due to uh, the shorter hours uh, in England and the notoriously long workday in India, they might be outcompeted by Indian manufacturing. And concerned about possible job losses or decreasing wages, English labor soon rallied behind these demands. This indicates that, especially in a globalized economy characterized by significant asymmetries in power and capital, the struggle for shorter hours had very different implications for workers across the globe. English workers embraced the demand not because of a feeling of solidarity towards Indian workers, but because they feared the repercussions of international competition. 
and Indian workers were heavily divided over whether or, rally whether or not to rally behind the demand. They knew that they lacked effective organizations and that they were integrated in a heavily discriminatory uh, colonial regimes. So they also knew that a shortening of their workday would most likely uh, end in a cut in their already meager wages. You've stressed the significance of collective action, legislation, and increasing international cooperation. But how did all of this influence the development of actual working hours over the past decades? Well, you would expect that the social sciences can provide a clear answer to that. After all, working hours can be measured, they can be calculated, they can be compared, right? Now, it's interesting that there is in fact still a lot of debate among economists, sociologists and political scientists as to how many hours people actually work today and as to how working hours have developed globally over the past two or three decades. And there are several reasons for this. For instance, calculating actual hours on a national basis is in fact less easy than it seems. Even where national legislation determines what a normal workday is, such as the currently hotly um, contested 35-hour law in France, This, of course, does not mean that French workers do not work more than 35 hours, because our laws usually set a legal limit above which overtime payments are due or rest periods increase. But they usually do not prohibit longer hours per se. And this, of course, makes calculations drawing on legislation difficult. But what I think is even more important is uh, that working time is extremely contingent on aspects such as gender or race or form of employment and, of course, also national and uh, even regional context. And this is the reason why we have difficulties providing a definite overview of how working time has developed globally over the past three decades or so. For one thing, there are huge discrepancies between Western industrialized economies and many economies in the global south. And I think that we are all more or less familiar with the harsh hour requirements in the clothing industries of South Asia that fill the shelves of our mass retailers. But there are even contradictory developments within the most industrialized economies. Like what? Well, researchers have shown that working hours started to increase in places like the US or the UK in particular since the onset of the neoliberal era in the 1970s and 1980s. But this is only half the story. Today, many workers and employees, like skilled workers in the metal industries or employees in professions or in public services, indeed work more than they used to 30 years ago and often they work much more than they would like to. Yet at the same time, others in fact work fewer hours than in the past, and also often much less than they would like to. And this of course has to do with the tremendous increase of part-time work and also with uh, significant changes in production processes over the past decades. Today, many workers simply cannot find full employment even if they wish to. And this applies disproportionately to female workers and ethnic minorities who are employed in the vast service economies of Western Europe and North America. And all this has led to the fact, as a researcher has put it recently, that today for some free time is scarce, for others plentiful. Can you give us a map of the workday of people who are not engaged in traditional manufacturing, civil service or service jobs? I'm thinking of myself as an academic, of course, with this dissolution of boundaries between work and non-work. But I'm also thinking about people who are selling products on Amazon or eBay, people who are engaged in legal work. Do any of these groups of people have any claims to shorter workdays or the means to fight for one? Well, that's really hard to tell, especially for what we call fictitious self-employment. And this refers to people who maybe a few decades ago would have been regular employees, but now work as freelancers, often for the same company, but without the social benefits arising from formal employment. 
And as many of our listeners will know, this is particularly widespread in journalism, for instance, but also in other creative labor. And of course, it is also widespread among re young researchers and academics on scholarships or fixed-term contracts. Here, conclusions about actual hours are very difficult to make, not only because we lack often reliable data, but also because time perceptions here often blur the distinction between what is actually considered work and what is considered leisure or professional development. For people in, engaged in what you call illegal or undocumented labor, or people working via time, uh, temp agencies, it is even harder to tell how many hours they actually work. And I think that one thing they do have in common is that they typically have very little control over how much they work because they have to take whatever they get and when they get it. So what we see among these groups of people are usually not so much direct struggles for shorter hours, but struggles for either recognition as a union or struggles to end their legal marginalization. So far, we've talked about changing experiences and the emergence of organized struggles for shorter hours. Could you tell us a little bit more about the reasons why workers demanded a reduction of hours? I mean, I can understand that a shorter workday had and still has obvious advantages from the point of view of labor, such as just more leisure time. But I assume that there were also other hopes that organized labor associated with shorter hours. Oh yeah, absolutely. What struck me when studying the eight-hour movement of the 19th century was the sheer breadth and diversity of the rationales behind it. In the book that emerged from my doctoral research, I distinguished between three groups of demands that drew on either civic or cultural or material values. First of all, shorter-hour activists argued that the worker who toiled up for 10, 12 or even more hours was unable to become an educated and well-informed citizen fit to perform his civic duties. So they argued that a reduction of the workday would allow workers to attend evening schools or trade union meetings, to sharpen their intellect in public debate, to engage in collective action maybe, or to understand party programs or even run for office. Second, these same activists also reasoned that toiling for 10 hours or more even dehumanized workers. So they often compared um, the unregulated long workday to the wielding of either machinery or of animals. And against this backdrop, they would then argue that we are neither wild beasts nor soulless machines, and therefore we deserve um, a shorter workday. So shorter hour activists um, emphasized that uh, workers were human beings too, and therefore deserved free time to spend with family and friends, to visit a museum or gallery, maybe to read a novel once in a while, or also to read scripture or, or attend religious services. So this last point was very interesting. Um, did the church or any kind of organized religion play a role in advocating for shorter hours? Yeah, it did. Um, but I would say that uh, the church or organized religion as such had a more ambivalent role in um, the struggle for shorter hours. Because on the one hand, Protestant um, traditions in particular very much emphasized thrift and diligence. And um, they therewith gave um, employers actually a weapon to prolong the workday. But the same logic also applied to um, activists in the shorter hour struggles who could argue that if I should become or if I should be a good Christian, then I need time to attend mass, I need time to read scripture, I need time to be a role model for my family and for my friends. So um, religion or Christian belief here really cut uh, both ways. You also mentioned what you called material values. Could you say something about more economical aspects of the struggle for a shorter workday? Yeah, so in sort of this group of economic arguments, there were again three dominant views or uh, approaches in the rationale of shorter hour activists. So first of all, shorter hour activists argued that um, the shortening of the workday 
would automatically increase productivity. So the logic here was that a well-rested worker would of course perform his duties or his tasks, his labor, with much greater diligence and more efficiency. And second, they also argued that the shortening of the workday would be a very important weapon in the struggle against unemployment. Um, and because especially in, in periods of high unemployment, shorter hour activists argued that um, work just needed to be distributed more evenly among uh, working people. And um, the shortening of the workday was one tool to get there for them. And um, third, organized workers also argued that the shortening of the workday would sort of automatically lead to higher wages. That's not necessarily um, so intuitive. How did employers respond to this? Well, as you might imagine, they, they fiercely opposed this logic. They, they argued that shorter hours wouldn't, of course, uh, result in lower wages. So they would say that um, if we should concede to your demands, then rest assured that this will be followed, of course, by a cut in wages. After all, you want to work less. So how do you think you can get more money? I'm curious as to whether this rhetoric was in fact backed up by reality. Is that in fact the case? This is really difficult to say because, uh, as you can imagine, uh, organized labor and trade unions in particular, they were very eager to document this in statistics and in research that they did by themselves. But of course, this was very much disputed and there's no clear evidence that um, the shortening of the work day or of working time in general produced higher wages. But it was one of the theories around and it was actually a very powerful one. But it's also interesting to see that this was not only completely disconnected from the major, at that time, let's say, Marxist um, or socialist uh, perspective on wage theories, but it was also, as the movement itself, extremely transnational. So it was the same logic applied in the US, in Germany, in, in many places at the same time. All right. So we began our discussion today with some remarks about historical change. To what extent do you think that historical rationales that you just described were still in place a century later? What role does it play in present-day struggles to reduce work time? Yeah, so this is what I'm currently thinking about in my own research. Um, when you think about Western Europe in the 1980s and 1990s, there were plenty of uh, struggles for shorter hours at the time, and they usually aimed uh, at introducing a 35-hour work week. Now, when we look at the pamphlets and articles and interviews that uh, these unions produced at that time in defense of the shorter hour demand, we see that aspects like unemployment, productivity, human dignity, creativity, autonomy in production, all this had lost nothing of its, of its historical importance. But other aspects, and in particular aspects from the sphere of political participation or civic engagement, seem to have vanished. And I think that this is a very strong indication for a general value shift towards more individualistic values in, in Western post-war societies. Uh, maybe this becomes a bit clearer when we look at the shorter hours that are happening today. As we speak, and after more than three decades of virtual silence on the matter, the German Battle Workers Union, which is not only the biggest union in Germany, but is in fact the, the biggest industrial union in Europe, made work time reductions once more a central plank in their negotiations with employers. And we already saw first warning strikes over the past weeks that served as an expression of the unionized metal workers' commitment. Yet when you study the official statements issued by the union, you will find that demands for work time reductions are framed almost exclusively in terms of greater compatibility of family and work. According to the union, temporary work time reductions are essential to take care of children or elderly relatives. The nexus of shorter hours and civic engagement, however, is virtually absent from debate. 
It makes sense that a shorter workday has important implications beyond the, what's come to be called the work-family balance. But maybe you could say a little bit more about the intersection of such demands with feminist struggles and changes in the allocation of work within the family. Yeah, if, if we go back in time, we see that gender already featured prominently in the historical shorter hour movements. In fact, many of the earliest campaigns in the mid-19th century or so demanded shorter hours for women and children only. Male labor activists at the time, and also some later historians, argued that the gendered struggle for shorter hours would serve as a sort of an opening wedge for universal or gender-neutral changes in the future. And they assumed that because women were integrated so thoroughly into production at that time, a shortening of, let's say, female hours would eventually also affect male hours. And they also knew that lawmakers and churchmen that we um, just talked about an instant ago Uh, but also conservative elites were much more open to demands for shorter female hours than shorter male hours. Um, so to a certain extent, this logic really worked. Uh, but at the same time, I think that the logic behind these campaigns also contributed to the very gender essentialism that helped cement the social roles ascribed to women over the past two centuries. So you're actually suggesting that the rationales differed between struggles for shorter female and shorter male hours. Oh yeah, definitely. Male workers demanded shorter hours for men because they saw themselves as autonomous subjects, as free citizens, as independent producers and so forth. These same male workers demanded shorter hours for women because due to their supposedly frail nature or their reproductive duties, women were apparently in need for greater protection from long hours. So we have here two very or radically different rationales that also had a significant impact not only on, on how gender roles were enforced, but also on how work was allocated within the family. And against this backdrop, I, I do think that we have come a long way. So when I voiced concern earlier about struggles such as the German metal workers campaign at the moment, and against this backdrop, I do think that we have come a long way. When I voiced concern earlier about struggles such as the German metal workers campaign at the moment, I don't mean to say that this might not have the potential to transform the still heavily gendered distribution of responsibilities for care work and family duties, but the strict focus on reproduction and the work-family balance means that today we rarely find arguments that associate work time reductions with greater political participation or a strengthening of civil society. And especially in a time when the latter seems to be under constant attack, it might be worthwhile, and for organized labor in particular, to recall that the movement for work time reduction used to be much more than a demand for greater flexibility in order to take over care duties. By focusing on aspects such as consumption or reproduction alone, we simply risk forgetting the rich legacy of a struggle that aimed at the democratic transformation of politics, society and the economy alike. You have been listening to Research Bites, the podcast of the Martin Buber Society of Fellows in the Humanities and Social Sciences. In this podcast, we hope to offer a taste or a bite of the research taking place in our society and the kinds of conversations taking place in its offices, hallways, and indeed, the kitchen. Additional episodes discuss matters such as the collaboration between the Catholic Church and the Stasi in East Germany and visual aspects of the Quran. Our thanks to Professor Igal Brunner, who helped produce this episode, Omri Bendor is our series producer, and Ori Dror is our sound recorder and editor. The Buber Society is a German-Israeli collaboration housed at the Hebrew University and funded by the German Federal Ministry of Education and Research. 
For more information about the Martin Buber Society of Fellows, about this episode and about additional episodes, please visit our website, buberfellows.huji.ac.il. That's buberfellows.huji.ac.il.